Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hey guys, it's Chris here again with another episode of Super Theism, and this will be the conclusion of Drake's Thomas Jefferson Was Wrong, A Complete Refutation of the Enlightenment. So the section I'm going to start on here deals with alcohol. It says, um, I would like to preface this article by stating outright that any excessive use or dependency on alcohol is sin. However, the following verses catalog the Hebrew uses of alcohol, Genesis 14:18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, Hebrew yayin. Now he was a priest of God Most High, Genesis 14:19. He blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth." In the LXX, or Septuagint, this word yayin is translated oinos, which is the word for wine in the New Testament. Exodus 29:38 through 41. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine, yayin, for a drink offering with one lamb. Leviticus 10:8. The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Leviticus 10.9, Do not drink wine, yayin, or strong drink, shakar, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting. This prohibition was during a special time of formal priestly duties, not at all times. Numbers 28.7, Then the drink offering with it shall be a fourth of hen, Fourth of a hen for each lamb in the holy place, you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink, shakar, to the Lord. Deuteronomy 14:26. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine, yayin, or strong drink, shakar, or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Judges 9:13. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, Hebrew tirosh, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? Second Samuel 13:28. Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, Yayin, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have not I myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Esther 1.10 On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, Yayin, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagda, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Nehemiah 5.18 now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. 
And once in ten days all sorts of wine, yayin, were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on this people. Psalm 104, 14-15 He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine, yayin, which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine, yayin, with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Ecclesiastes 10.19 Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine, yayin, makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Amos 9.14 Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine, yayin, and make gardens and eat their fruit. Zechariah 9.15 The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones, and they will drink and be boisterous as with wine, yayin, and they will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. Zechariah 10.7 Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine, yayin. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. Isaiah 121 through 22. How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Here, having one's alcohol diluted wine with water is a sign of God's judgment. Isaiah 25, 6, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, shemer, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine, shemer. Verse 8, Will wipe tears away from all faces with alcohol. God is comforting his people with sin. <laughs> now to the New Testament. Romans fourteen twenty one. It is good not to eat drink, eat meat, or to drink wine, oinos, or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. 1 Timothy 3.8 Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, oinos, or fond of sordid gain. The implication is obvious that it is an addictive substance, not grape juice. Titus 2.3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, oinos, teaching what is good. Again, the implication is obvious that it is an addictive substance, not grape juice. John 2.9, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, oinos, it did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. Luke 7:33 through 34 For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine oinos and you say he has a demon the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say behold a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners why the assumption of drunkenness if it is grape juice objection 
Proverbs 21. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Proverbs 23:29 through 32. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. These passages are directed towards a a habitual drunk, not all peoples. Take, for instance, many passages that make a blanket condemnation of something, but it is not meant to be taken absolutely. Deuteronomy 21.20 They shall say to the elders of a city, "This, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. So should we abstain from food also? Proverbs 23:21 For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. So should we abstain from food? Romans 13:13 13, 13, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. So should, should we abstain from sex at all times? 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So should we abstain from money? No. Job 42.10 says... The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. God has no problem with a man being wealthy. Conclusion. Enjoy your beers, your brandy, your wine, and your cigars, and do it all to the glory of God. Divorce and remarriage. Martin Bucker was a 16th century Protestant reformer in Strasbourg, a contemporary and friend of Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. He wrote voluminously on the issues that concern the application of theology to society. The following will be based on his Of the Kingdom of Christ, quoted in The Prose Works of John Milton, Volume 1. In this treatise, we must first keep in mind the way the relationship between two covenanted parties is understood. Just as in the divine right of kings debate in Rutherford's Lex Rex, we are going to find that the biblical idea of a conditional covenant, as opposed to a mystical, superstitious, and therefore tyrannical sacramental relationship, is key in escaping the conscience-searing effects of anchorism. Just as in the anchoretic superstitions regarding ceremonies, candles, incense, robes, vestments, altars, relics, prayers to dead saints and homage paid to rotting corpses, quote, it is, a ra- is it, it is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, end quote, Proverbs 20.25. Marriage is not a sacrament. It is a conditional covenant that only the civil authorities can ultimately dissolve as this issue pertains to the sphere of secular authority, a category that Rome adamantly despises because this is just another attempt by the anchoretic churches to completely control the state and all of human life. 
An over-solemn attitude towards marriage is based on a typical Roman Catholic view of arbitrary authority. But that is the point, isn't it? As Protestants, we believe in a real distinction between the secular and the sacred. We believe in a real distinction between church and state. Rome wants the church above the state. The Anglicans want the state above the church. But we Protestants believe the church and state to have distinct authorities and functions. Marriage is not a sacrament, therefore it may be dissolved if the terms of the covenant are not met. Just like we saw in the Scottish Reformation, where if the king does not meet the terms of the covenant between the people and himself, he may be resisted and overthrown with violence if necessary. Covenants have terms and obligations. They are not unconditional. I am going to quote the primary passages of Scripture that deal with these issues of divorce and remarriage and immediately give necessary commentary and consideration, all in defense of the idea that physical adultery is not the only grounds for the right to divorce and remarry, and the desertion spoken of by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 can be extended to other sins or impotencies, giving full right to the innocent spouse to divorce and remarry after all attempts to correct the abuse through church and state fail. Isaiah 51, Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you are sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. I wanted to begin this little discourse by reminding us that God himself divorced Israel for their sins, and so we should not think of divorce as something evil in itself. If that was so, God is evil for divorcing Israel. Deuteronomy 24.1 When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. Matthew 5.31-32 it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19:7 through 9 They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Romans 7, 1 through 3. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. The first axiom that we must accept is that Yeshua's teaching does not contradict Moses' teaching. See Matthew 5, 7 through 19, or 5, 17 through 19. Second, concerning Deuteronomy 24, John Gill points out, quote, This word, quote, uncleanness, does not signify adultery or any of the uncleannesses forbidden in Leviticus 18, 6 through 19, because that was punishable with death, end quote. 
So I want to be clear that this passage was not given by Moses to appease the emotional turmoil of a person who has been betrayed through their spouse's sexual unfaithfulness or desertion. That is not what Christ means by hardness of heart. The Jews were putting away wives that met all qualifications for a lawful spouse. This sinful attitude was tolerated, not morally sanctioned, to maintain the commonwealth of Israel at that time. So let it be clear that when Yeshua addresses this issue, it is in the context of a wife who meets the necessary qualifications and obligations for a lawful spouse, just like in Deuteronomy 24. That is why Messiah does not mention desertion as a grounds for divorce, but Paul does. This is not the same thing as a person who physically abuses their spouse and refuses to meet necessary marital obligations. In Fisher's Catechism, he says, Question, why then does our Lord tell the Pharisees in Matthew 19.8, quote, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives? Answer, the meaning is, Moses, because of the wicked and malicious disposition of the Jews, and in order to prevent a greater evil, namely the ill usage or even killing of their hated wives, if they could not be separated from them, permitted processes of divorce to be legally commenced, end quote. <clears throat> Do people not have hard hearts anymore? Does the greater evil of remaining bound in a miserable and wretched marriage, which can only lead to adultery, not exist anymore? This is pre preposterous. Of course it does, and I find it fascinating that Fisher, Fisher does not say a word about the meaning and extent, extents of the desertion spoken of in 1 Corinthians 7. Booker speaks in detail on the great extents of the evils produced by the Roman Catholic Church's refusal to grant divorces and the multiplied evils that were produced by it. It is the same sinfulness today as in the days of Moses, and we have the same greater evil to avoid stemming from the same rights and obligations of men as in the time of Moses. So how could someone make the argument that Deuteronomy 24.1 no longer applies to Christian societies? This is the attitude of the Romanists, a person being beaten and refused marital benefits when they do not have the gift of celibacy, see Matthew 19.11, which leads to adultery is better than divorce and remarriage. I wonder why a Romanist would say something like that. Maybe they want their people to live under despair and moral depravity pursuant unto an ecclesiastical and civil agenda. Maybe those sins are used by the church to keep their societies morally depraved so that they will never investigate what is going on behind closed doors in their churches. Hmm. See Bucker on page 267, where he attributes a denial of divorce and remarriage as a popish, anti-Christian doctrine. Ezra 9.1 through 3. <clears throat> or Ezra 9, 1 through 2, and then 10, 3. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. 
So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. I have failed to find a single Old Testament commentator give this verse much detailed explanation with regard to its relationship to 1 Corinthians 7. Some erroneously allege that Paul's 1 Corinthians 7 passage overrides this passage in Ezra. Such talk is Gnostic and quite frankly stupid. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is speaking to people who married as unbelievers and then subsequently one of them became a believer. In that situation, divorce was not to be immediately pursued, but only pursued if the unbelieving spouse deserted. This law is required because the covenant of grace is now extending to nations historically alien to God. That was not the case with Ezra 9 and 10. You had a believing people taking unbelieving spouses. That was directly forbidden in Deuteronomy 7.3. The marriage was null and void because it was an unlawful vow. It is the same teaching for Old Testament saints as New Testament saints. Same law, same religion. Paul clearly forbids marrying unbelievers just like Moses did in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 7.39, 2 Corinthians 6.14 And no vow is binding that is unlawful. This is the exact issue that the first reformers had to deal with when their vows of celibacy were revoked as unlawful, and Luther, for instance, having acknowledged the unlawfulness of that vow, took a wife. So I would actually make a minor point of distinction with Drake here. I think that the main main, uh, push of of Ezra passage is that they um, intermarried with a forbidden race. And that was forbidden in the Torah. You were not supposed to um, intermarry with other races if you were a Hebrew. Um, Now, I believe that some, you know, conditions were given where a non-Israelite could become an Israelite um, through circumcision and then later on through intermarriage. But... um, Other than that, you could not intermarry with other races. And uh, I think that was the main the main push of that passage there. And I think, you know, the New Testament does, definitely does not abrogate that at all, that understanding. Um, so moving on, it says Malachi 2.14. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, Actually, I take that back. Actually, uh, I don't know if other races could become Israelites in the Old Testament because uh, there was a passage that talks about Egyptians that could be um, that could become Israelites, but Egyptians would have been the same race because they were Adamites. Um, they weren't Hebrews, but they were Adamites, so they would have been the same. They would have been in the same over, you know broader racial group. So, I'm not sure if uh, Adamites were allowed to intermingle with non-Adamites. I would say that I don't don't see any evidence for that. So, Malachi 2.14, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have 
dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 15. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Deal and Delitch's commentary on the Old Testament, Malachi 2.13-16, through 16, may be referenced to introduce you to the flow of thought and the use of these terms through Malachi's prophecy, which all agrees with John Calvin's commentary on Deuteronomy 24 when he states, quote, Still, God chose to make a provision for women who were cruelly oppressed and for whom it was better that they should at once be set free than that they should groan beneath a cruel tyranny during their whole lives. Thus, in Malachi, divorce is preferred to polygamy, since it would be a more tolerable condition to the, to be divorced than to bear with a harlot and a rival. Malachi 2.14, end quote. 1 Corinthians 7.1 through, through 16. Now concerning the things about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife already at the time of conversion who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? <clears throat> this passage truly is an all-out indictment against miserable marriage. Theodosius I, a great Christian emperor from the 4th century, extended 1 Corinthians 7.15 to many areas of sin, as was pointed out in the Encyclopedia Americana, Volume 4, 
by Gamaliel and Vethake that divorce was lawful if your spouse was a witch, a murderer, a slave trader, sacrilegious, a thief, a robber, overly flirtatious, refused to to regular cohabitation, a frequenter of illicit plays, or a traitor. On page 277 of Bucker, he says that offenses that by the civil laws of God or man require death or long-term imprisonment constitute an abandonment or an infamy and therefore are grounds for divorce and remarriage. He adds on page 274 that a refusal to provide conjugal duty is grounds for divorce. Better to marry than to burn is no less true of the deserted or divorced person, as is physical abuse, as Booker shows on page 275. Wouldn't such teaching also condemn such contemporary sins, such as a refusal to work and support the family, refusal to bear or care for children, unrepentant addiction to pornography, alcoholism, or drug abuse as grounds for divorce? Objections. 1. If you have a situation where there is abuse, a separation is required, not divorce. Answer. First, there is no difference between a desertion and a separation. Second, if the abused mother separates, how is she going to provide for the children? If she appeals to the state, she will have to first divorce the man for the state to grant her child support privileges. Two. Well, okay, you can divorce, but you can't remarry. That would be adultery. Answer. The right to divorce is the same as the right to remarry. Bucker, page 280. The whole point of 1 Corinthians 7.15 is that if you are deserted, you are not bound to misery as a single person. You have a right to divorce, which means you have a right to remarry. 3. Divorce deviles the person, Deuteronomy 24.1-3, and is even on your own terms simply a deterrent to a greater evil. Is that not sin? Answer. In the sense that God's law allows it, it is not a sin. However, in a societal sense, there is a social reproach that comes with divorce and remarriage. Leviticus 21.7 does not allow a man who married a divorced woman to be a priest. Picking up off this passage, a Roman bishop named Leo only removed a man from the priesthood for marrying a divorced woman. He did not dissolve the marriage or excommunicate him. Therefore, the male spouse of a couple where one person has been divorced should not hold positions of church leadership. The female spouse, of course, is not eligible for church office. Addendum. The Jewish Encyclopedia on Divorce states, quote, In the Mishnaic period, the theory of the law that the husband could divorce his wife at will was challenged by the school of Shemai. It interpreted the text of Deuteronomy 24.1 in such a manner as to reach the conclusion that the husband could not divorce his wife except for cause, and that the cause must be sexual immorality. The school of Hillel, however, held that the husband need not assign any reason whatever that any act on her part which displeased him entitled him to give her a bill of divorce. The opinion of the school of Hillel prevailed. Philo of Alexandria and Josephus held this opinion. Jesus seems to have held the view of the school of Shammai. End quote. All right. That's it for uh, Drake's Thomas Jefferson Was Wrong, A Complete Reputation of the Enlightenment. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I guess I'll stop this here. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.